We are in a decisive decade. We don't have time to try to do these silos and only focus on one of these issues. Because we're holistic investors, if we invest in a manufacturing firm, we're going to help them be more clean, right? So we say we're trying to create the clean quality jobs of the future. We move that capital to our women. We know that literally the path to changing the world is through women. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, we have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of social impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Tracy Gray. Tracy is the founder and managing partner of the 22 Fund, a venture capital firm that focuses on increasing the export capacity of Southern California companies and creating jobs with an emphasis on women and minority owned companies. Tracy is also the founder of We Are Enough, a nonprofit educating people on why and how to invest with a gender lens. She has extensive experience working across venture capital, the mayor's office in Los Angeles, and the music and aerospace industries. Welcome, Tracy. So great to have you. Thank you so much. That was an old bio. We, we actually invest across the country, but thanks for having me. I'm excited. That's great. Excited to learn more about the 22 fund and your investing. But first, I I would love to learn and share, you know, a little bit more about you with our audience. I mean, I know you from Los Angeles and also being an impact investor. You also have an incredible range of experiences in your career, having studied mathematical science and aeronautics in college. I know you also went to Columbia Business School, which piques my attention, having gone to Barnard. I would love to unpack how you got to where you are today, how your professional experiences shaped who you are today. I used to beat myself up that I didn't have a linear experience and, you know, stayed in one industry and grew and then became the leader of an industry. But I know that I love to learn constantly. And that's a nice way of saying that I pretty much have professional ADD. I'm like (laughs) a dog and a squirrel. If I see another one, I'm like off and running to that, which when I, now that I'm at an age where I appreciate myself and my growth more, I see it, it led to where I am now. And, you know, if you're in venture or private equity, you invest in multiple types of companies. And because I'm a generalist, I understand a lot of different strategies. But the foundation of everything is really justice, injustice and being fair. And I think that comes from the fact that I started my professional career as an engineer. On I worked on the space shuttle program. Engineers are very logical. One plus one equals two. If you put in a four and you say it equals two, then I'm like, no, and that doesn't make any sense. And so a lot of isms, racism, sexism, anything that was unfair really got to me because of the didn't make sense is illogical for me. So 
when I was in the space shuttle program, I was the only person of color who was an engineer. And there's one other woman on my program, <clears throat> on my project. When I got into the music industry, I like rock music. You know, I like some rap and hip hop and I like, uh, you know, what people typically think an African-American woman would like, but I like rock. And so I was the only person, the only woman in the rock side where, when I was around back then. And so, and then when I got into venture capital, the same thing happened. I was the only investment professional that was a woman on our team and I just it didn't make any sense to me so since then my goal has been in this industry that I love and the impact it has and the wealth that it grows that more women and people of color deserve and should have capital and I didn't understand why now I understand why but that's been the mission for me since 20 years ago when I entered venture Unfortunately, as you know, the numbers for women and people of color have stayed the same from a percentage level, which makes no sense statistically from an engineer that that is possible when so many people are coming into the industry. So that's what's driven me and brought me to where I am now and trying to figure out ways that nexus of private capital and public good. Why is it? You say that now you understand why. Could you shed some light on that? Well, not rocket science, right? Because I was on the space shuttle program. It's actually quite simple. There's structural and systemic barriers and racism baked into a system that was not created by women and people of color. It is... What are some examples of that? So on my side as an investor, I raise, I'm raising capital. And the due diligence process has requirements that were created for a certain segment. So one of the big requirements is you have to have a track record in the same, with the same investment strategy that you're doing now. Well, if right now 98.7% of financial asset managers are white men. So if I'm supposed to get a track record, how do I get that if I'm not allowed in the firms that you get your track record from? So even if you, so say you take care of that, I have my partner has a track record. So then they, the next one is you haven't worked together. You have to work together. Well, how do you work together if you can't even get into the firms that you're supposed to work together in? So it's constant, constant catch 22s. So you would say like on the hiring practices or on the, how those firms are, are bringing people into their partnerships and associates and so on is one of the issues other than what you've done, which go and start your own. Yes. If you start your own, there's a whole, I mean, I, that was just two out of probably 20 barriers on, on the investor side. And then on the entrepreneur side, you have, you know, there's a lot of venture capitalists that say you have to have friends and family capital because third party capital validates you. But a lot of women and people of color don't have friends or family, or they're not in those networks where they can get that type of capital invest in them. So once again, that barrier stays there because whoever created this requirement, their lens was different. Tracy, I relate to you on so many levels of what you just said, including having justice as a core value and being a quantitatively minded woman who views injustice as illogical. So that just really stood out. And thank you for pointing that out about you and how it translates to what you're doing now. To your point, Ed, you know, also a female here raising a venture fund. Some of the other, just for our our audience, some of the other barriers I've, I've found are minimum GP investment requirements 
parents because that often means that you know somebody's coming out of finance always and coming out of a particular system where they have earned a lot of money in order to invest in their fund. And I think there are some questions that are baked into due diligence processes around even asking about track records and legitimizing track records of different kinds and and backgrounds of different kinds that also have some bias in them that I've observed. So it's definitely something I would actually encourage every investor who listens to this podcast to take a look at their due diligence process and really ask that tough question as to where there might be some bias embedded. Because I think, Tracy, you point out some some really, really key areas. I do want to shed light on the 22 fund and maybe walk through some examples of the investment strategy and the companies that you focus on and why you have set your investment strategy. Can you unpack that for us? When I first decided to raise my own fund back in 2007, actually, right before the our last recession, I was focused on early stage venture capital investing in women and people of color in tech. But when I went out to raise, people kept asking me the question, are there women and people of color in tech? And I would kind of look around like, are you talking to me? I am a woman, person of color in tech. And you're asking me if I exist or not. What it made me think about was, okay, either they're not seeing them or, you know, we are not in these networks in the tech ecosystem. So I wanted to figure out how I could bring more women and people of color into tech and not just entrepreneurs, but the workers themselves. So they're exposed to it because, you know, when you see something, you do it. Right. And so we know women and people of color are very entrepreneurial because we've had to do so much with so less for so long. So I when I was in the mayor's office, one of my my big job was to increase the export capacity of companies because during their last recession, exports was the number one economic development tool for the Obama administration. And we worked with Brookings to bring that on the ground because companies that export create jobs faster. All the research shows. Not only that, they are also, the companies are more successful, have higher revenues, and they were the ones that made it through the recession, the last recession. When you couple them with manufacturing, they pay higher wages. The average wage for a manufacturer that exports is 94000 and they're more likely to have health care. So I saw this one strategy of investing in company and manufacturing companies to increase their export hit so many impacts that I want to have. I should say that I don't really call myself an impact investor anymore. I call myself a holistic investor because I'm not trying to address climate change. I'm not trying to address the gender inequities or the racial inequities or only job creation or only people of color and women in tech. I'm trying to hit all of them. Because we are in a decisive decade, we don't have time to try to do these silos and only focus on one of these issues. I found that this one strategy did that for me. I could hit a bunch of impacts, which is, I forget the French word for it, but my reason of being is to be impactful as much as I can. So 22 Fund is based on that. Because our mission is job creation in underserved communities, we are bringing this workforce into tech because most manufacturing at this point is tech enabled or tech based. And there's a 2.4 million job position shortfall in manufacturing because of a lack of skills. So that's why I did this because it just hit everything. Plus it de-risks your people's investments and these companies are more successful. So then I'm more likely to make a lot of money because I do want to do that too. 
Now, do you go in with a minority stake or do you do a, a majority or a whole buyout? We see this as a win-win and we want our interests to be aligned with our, the entrepreneurs and the companies we invest in. So we also we actually most likely take a minority stake and it's not always going to be pure equity. We invest with three different types of securities. We revenue share, equity, and sub debt with warrants because not every company should have equity and not every company can serve as debt. So you've got to look at the companies individually and see what's best for them. Our companies aren't traditionally startups. They're existing firms. It can be a long round for 15, 20 years with an entrepreneur that doesn't know about equity and, he, and they may think, oh, they're trying to take my business or they just need this capital to export. And so they're, and they're spitting out a lot of cash. So revenue share makes more sense. So we look at it differently than traditional venture and private equity. So are you going into these companies and they're already purpose-driven or are you putting that into the equation when you invest? Because we're holistic investors, if we invest in a manufacturing firm, we're going to help them be more clean, right? So we say we're trying to create the clean quality jobs of the future. And so purpose-driven, what does that mean to you? For me, purpose-driven is also the fact that we invest in women and people of color. Also that we are making these companies cleaner, that these companies are going to be creating jobs in underserved communities. Purpose-driven, it depends what lens you're coming from when you look, when you have that word, which is why we call ourselves holistic, because we're trying to do a, have impact all over the place. Because of my DNA, purpose-driven is what I want to do. Our companies are a lot, a lot of them are in clean tech or in some kind of sustainability, or they're women and people of color running them. They have unhealthy work environments. We have an impact document on how we will measure all the companies and they're going to have to report back. It's going to be in their term sheet, everything. If they want our capital, this are the things you're going to have to do. And some of them might be already be doing it. Some of them are going to have to make some changes. Yes, exactly. I was just, there's some we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do nothing that's already bad for the climate, nothing that is gun related, nothing that, you know, prison related, all those things that we are just part of our own value system. We will leave out. And you mentioned that you invest across the U.S. Where are you seeing the companies kind of that you're investing? I mean, it, is it in the middle of the country? Is it on the coasts? Is it Texas? I would love to know like where your portfolio is concentrated. So I just want to make clear that we're still raising our fund. We have a, a pipeline of companies, but we're not investing yet because we have, as you know, raising a fund. We're raising hundred million. So it's, we have to write bigger check sizes. So these are the companies that I've worked with in the past, or I know of are, are in our pipeline. What we did in Los Angeles around exports, we created this export ecosystem with the Brookings Institute. After Los Angeles, Brookings went around the country and they created 32 more regions to support companies to help them export. And this is important because Right now, 1% of all our companies in the U.S., small, medium, and large, actually export. When you look at other economies that made it through the last recession, they're export-driven and export-based. So Germany, France, Germany's 42% exports. We're a consumer-based economy. So when we're not selling to each other and we don't have the capital buy, then we, we're hit harder. So there are regions around the country that have export ecosystems. And that's where we go. So Dallas, Philadelphia, 
Denver, all over the coast here, Seattle, upper New York State, Baltimore. It's where there's these metropolitan areas that stretch out a little bit into a little more rural where manufacturing can go. That's fascinating. That's that's really, really helpful and, and definitely sheds light on that point. We've talked about your raise and the types of companies that you're planning to invest in and also the investment thesis. You strongly are emphasizing the importance of investing in women and, and minority-owned companies, and you have started a nonprofit, We Are Enough, which is dedicated to educating people about the importance of doing just that. For those who may not know about this topic, can you share, we talked a little bit about why they're underrepresented and the structures, but can you share kind of like the tenets of what We Are Enough does and explain why you're motivated to start a nonprofit alongside your fund? Well, yeah, I didn't want to have a nonprofit and I'm not a nonprofit gal, (laughs) Um, but (laughs) what I did see, I I had to do a TED talk, TEDx talk, and I thought I was going to speak on always being the only African-American and everything I did. And then I just started seeing the research. This was in 2015, the research around the lack of capital going to women. You know, when I entered venture capital, and 20 years ago, it was 3% of the venture capital was going to women, 10% of the venture capitalists were women. And then in 2015, when I was doing my TED Talk, and it continued to this day, the number of women getting venture capital went down to 2.2%. And the number of women that were venture capitalists went down to 6%. And once again, I, I was this is statistically impossible with the numbers of women and people color or women, especially women of color who are coming into the system, there had to have been barriers and structural barriers that were keeping us out. And it wasn't unconscious bias. This was just straight up bias to keep these numbers so stubborn. So then I saw at the same time, the amount of capital we as women control, I think it's 75% of all the consumer discretionary capital around the world is controlled by women. Then I saw we are slightly better investors And then the number that 90%, 85 to 90% of our capital goes to our communities or our family and men, it's 35%. And then finally, the UN said to address and have the greatest impact on the sustainable development goals is to grow women's wealth. So, you know, being an engineer, I put all, added that all together and it was like, oh, Women need to invest. That's, we are not, and that was the other part. We aren't investing. We're so easily give our money away, but we do not invest. And we let other people control our investment capital. So I thought, okay, if we just educate women, how and why they should invest in women, own businesses or with a gender lens on, you know, public markets and stock markets, that solves everything. We move that capital toward women. We know that literally the path to changing the world is through women. We just need to understand. And so I wasn't planning to start a nonprofit, but after I gave my talk, a lot of women came up to me and they were actually kind of, they were crying and it was telling me how emotional money is to women. We don't want to admit we want to make a lot of money, that we have a lot of money, that we spend a lot of money. We just have this really dysfunctional relationship with money because we are the caretakers, because we don't want to risk it because we know what happens when we lose our money, communities and our families fail. So I thought, okay, we're leaving so much trillions of dollars on the table because women aren't invested in women. Let's just get them activated and inspired to do so. And that's why I created 
we are enough and we're going to launch a three-year campaign hopefully early next year you know it's hard to be certain of anything anymore to get three million women in three years to invest at every economic level it doesn't matter if you have 25 cents or 25 million dollars if you have a piggy bank or own a bank there's a place where we as women can invest now and if we did that and we had an average of $1,000, we know this because we did some focus groups and some surveys that it would come to an average or the, the minimum was about $1,000 that we saw with women in developing in developed com- countries. We would move $3 billion toward women in three years and that's never happened. And so we want to put ourselves out of business in three years because women will understand. You know, it's such an interesting topic because being a guy and being a, an entrepreneur, I go out and raise capital as well. And, you know, first of all, raising capital is difficult for everybody to do. You know, you get rejected a hundred times. It's more difficult for other people, as you mentioned. But, you know, the first reaction that sort of like a white male has to this is, well, you know, it's it's tough to raise capital. This is, this is the kind of the nature of the beast and so on. But then when you dig a little bit deeper into it and you think about like, okay, hiring a an African-American woman into your venture capital firm as an, as a case in point. And you've got two candidates. You've got a, a white guy and an African-American woman equally qualified, let's just say. You like them both too. You know, you kind of think there and say, well, I don't know how many of my LPs are racist. I don't know how many of my LPs are sexist. They don't tell me. So if I put somebody out there who's kind of like, could be a negative, I'm just, that, that I'm not going to go that direction. So I think that's the systemic, I don't know that it's systemic or structural. It's, I, I, those are the right words, but it's really just insidious and, and so nuanced in there that I don't think there's another answer other than to do what you're doing. You know, which is, it might sometimes come off as exclusory to people like me, but I think on balance, there's not really any other way to tackle it or make any progress. Well, one, it is structural and systemic. You're not going to see it because you're a white mouth, frankly. You're just not going to see what I see. You're not going to hear what I hear. Finance is not about money. It's about power. And this is from a friend of mine, Joy Anderson, who said that. But if you go through the due diligence process and you see every barrier, it is baked in and that is structural. Oh yeah, that part is for sure. I was just talking about that that um, hiring example, but sure, I understand what you're saying. Well, even, but then, but think about what you just said about that. That That is, you are assuming women and people of color are lesser in some way in someone's mind and then you're complicit in keeping that structure, that structural barrier going because the LPs are also white men, mainly. I'm not complicit with it. I'm not going to argue, but what you just said is part, could be part of the complicit nature of things. Just mentioning that some venture capitalists have racist or sexist thoughts is me being complicit. It's hard to have the conversation to tell people what's happening from my point of view, because people automatically get defensive, right? And they have to say, I'm not doing this, but something is keeping this going. You know, there's a difference. You'll hear this a lot. There's a difference between being not racist and anti-racist. And the difference is how you support structures that support racism. And if you can say right now that you don't support some structures that support racism, then you are not really looking deeply enough. And I'm not going to, I'm not really here to say, Ed, you're, you know, you're complicit. I'm saying that it is not an exclusionary for you to be. And I know you're not saying you think it's exclusionary. I said people, some people think that. 
But the word you use when you said, you said it may not be structural or. I said it's insidious, which, which is, which just means that it's, you know, it's an evil lurking in the, in the ether. So that's kind of more of a semantic point that I was trying to make, which wasn't the, the main point. I was trying to say that you're, you know, focusing on investing in underrepresented entrepreneurs is, is in my mind, the, a critical solution to the problem. Okay. Yeah. You know, if I could just jump in, in your example, Ed, what came up to me was not necessarily being an ally. So I wouldn't call it complicit. I would call it maybe not standing up and and let's just anonymize it. And it has nothing, you know, your example, I think was just hypothetical for the purpose of mentioning your point. But let's say somebody is making a hiring decision between two equal candidates, but they are thinking about their decision based on maybe their investors, you know, having racial racist tendencies or not preferring a female on a job, in my opinion, that is not being an ally in any way. And so I would select the person of color. And I agree. I mean, I I think the thread, exactly. I think the thread that you were trying to point out was the way to move forward is to select for, and it is the, the investment strategy that the 22 fund is employing is, you know, to invest in the people, invest in a way that you think will bring justice to the world. That's, that's how I would personally view it. Exactly. I mean, you've said it better than me. But I do want to say that there is structural systemic racism because insidious is, it's not just, you know, rhetorical and it's not semantics. There are barriers that are baked into the structure of systems through the structure of the due diligence process that keep women and especially women of color and people of color out. And it's not, it's not just some nuanced insidious thing lurking. You, I can point out to the actual structural problems. Well, let me be clear. I know that there are structural and systemic racism in lots of places in America. Like if you look at the way that even in the prosec- prosecutorial system, how prosecutors are you know, basically promoted on how many cases they win and that they often rely on the testimony of police officers in order to win their cases. And if police officers are prosecuted by the prosecutors, then they don't go and testify ever for the prosecutors to win their cases. That's a, a very good example of systemic racism or a systematic problem where prosecutors are basically in, you know, incentivized to be pro-police. Yeah. And your example of having family and friends money or having your own capital contribute is also structural or systemic in the sense that that's a norm that's expected in the boilerplate documents that somebody's, you know, lawyer gives them and that doesn't fit through the right lens of, you know, someone who can't meet some of those criteria. That's structural and systemic as well. And I'm sure there are many, many more examples of that from what you've seen. Yeah. And I think one of the things, again, you know, we can do as investors is really try to remove some of these biases from our process. And, you know, companies can can do the same in in their hiring practices, as you pointed out, Ed. I do want to turn to just a a nuanced point about investing in manufacturing and try to understand a little bit better. You know, manufacturing isn't always viewed as the most positive impact industry. You know, if if I were to think about manufacturing, I think about, you know, smokestacks and uh, it's, you know, an antiquated view but like my brain thinks of like, you know, smokestacks and looking into New Jersey from New York City where I grew up and seeing, you know, what manufacturing was putting into the environment. Do you ever encounter that, Tracy, with your investments? Do you ever have conversations and tough conversations around what companies 
impact can be? Or do you just not not invest in those types of businesses? We won't invest in anything do in any kind of dirty business. I like to call myself also an impatient Buddhist. I'm a Buddhist, obviously a Buddhist practicing and need work. We just don't have time to look at things differently. So there are plenty of, most clean tech is hardware and hardware has to be made, right? So that's manufacturing. These are the jobs of the future we're trying to create. So the old dirty firms, either they're dying themselves or we can up tech, I don't know the other word for it, up tech them to become cleaner. One of my partners is um, been in manufacturing his entire life, but he's also been in clean manufacturing his entire life and he's in his you know 50s. So it's possible to do that. So there's just no reason for us to look at those old industries, but you're not the only one who doesn't understand what manufacturing of today is. It's called industry 4.0 and it's the way manufacturing is done, the kind of products they're creating. Everyone thinks, oh, manufacturing is dying and automation and robotics are going to kill jobs. It's not killing jobs, it's changing jobs. And I don't want women and people of color to be left out once again of this new, these new ways of doing business and industry and manufacturing. So people just don't realize that manufacturing is foundation of a lot of economies along with small and medium-sized businesses. So we've got to change them. And if you look at the, not to get at all political, but if you look at the Biden uh, campaigns, one of their priorities and the Trump administration, their priorities, manufacturing and advanced manufacturing is on top of the ways to help with our economy and to deal with inequity. So manufacturing is sexier than you think. <laughs> yeah, I've caught wind of that. But uh, it's, I mean, I wanted to hear it from you being the expert as well. And I think that that's really exciting for the build back better aspect of, you know, the post-COVID economy. I would love to do some rapid fire questions and um, the fun part. maybe get to know you better, Tracy, in a quick way. So I'll start off. I'd actually love a yes or no to this one. Have you always seen yourself as an entrepreneur? Yes, but didn't know it. <laughs> okay, good. I love the qualifier is great. What book is on your nightstand right now? I, I read three books at a time every morning for the first hour before I look at my phone or turn on the news. I read something about human nature. So I just finished Sapien. And then I read something Buddhist or more otherworldly. So I've been reading the series about your life between lives so our soul life, uh, the first one's journey of the soul and death and destiny of the soul. So I'm trying to figure out why we do the things we do as humans. As a Buddhist, I have to figure this out so I don't feel angry and upset and sad about humans all the time. So I'm trying to, I spend a lot of time trying to understand myself and the people around me. One thing that always gives me hope about humans is just to think about a billion years from now when humans definitely won't be around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That gives so, me anxiety. What is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Tea, first thing, with a little caffeine. You can you can hear me, see me now. I'm not on caffeine. I drink only decaf coffee because my mouth cannot keep up with my brain at all with caffeine. So it's tea <laughs> and then coffee. I have no internal filter, Ed, as you saw <laughs> when you're first meeting me. I just, whatever is in my mind, I tend to vomit up. 
So caffeine makes it come a lot faster. Makes for a lively conversation. Great energy. What is one trend that you are watching in your industry that maybe we didn't talk about today? I'm very interested in AI and robotics and automation and how that's going to can be an equalizer instead of a separation and you know job killer like I said. So I'm also noticing how much impact investing is in the middle of a lot of conversations. I'm trying to convince people that women and people of color are not the victims in the world of business and finance. We are the solutions, the innovations that I'm seeing around the world from especially women of color. There are things we're not even, that I can't even think of and answer that question right now that are probably happening because they're trying to get solutions to problems that we don't have, but they have. I don't know if that's clear what I'm saying, but I think there are a lot of things that are happening on the ground that we don't know about and we're going to see a lot faster right now. That's cool. So when your brain is going a million miles an hour, what is the best way for you to unwind? I like to say it's my meditation every morning, but <laughs> it's not. I am a blurred, a black nerd. Okay. Every day, every First time day, I've heard that term. I'm that person that knows everything about Harry Potter, everything about Lord of the Rings, everything about Star Wars. And every day at eight o'clock, and I don't know why I do this because I could just go on Netflix and watch it, but there's something about that eight o'clock every day, except Saturdays, the original Star Trek comes on and the moral uh, learnings and stories and what happens on that is so comforting to me that I just can't wait till I watch Rachel Maddow and then Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> With a glass of wine. My son is going to be Harry Potter for Halloween, just so you know. Yes. I love Halloween. It's my favorite holiday. That's also good to know about you. And lastly, from the rapid fires, what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20-year-old self? Do not care about what other people think at all. And then don't take the world so seriously. I mean, we're, we're here to live, to enjoy ourselves, to enjoy other people. You know, and taking everything that happens so seriously, it's just, that's the antithesis of life. Hard to yeah, top that. I, could, I agree. Well, with that, Tracy, it's been so great to speak to you, to hear your thoughts and your views, as well as just kind of the, the opportunity that you see in investing in women and people of color and women of color, especially. And I, could, I can definitely attest to that opportunity in the areas where I invest around the world as well. So it is incredible to have had you on this show. And thank you so much for your time. All the best with your fundraise. I know you'll get there. I can't wait to see what happens with your new fund and you know i'm so thrilled to see you where you are if there's any way i can be helpful just let me know i thank you both for having me i really appreciate it. i'm always shocked when people want to hear anything i have to say but i do appreciate you both i have a lot of gratitude that you have this podcast and i can't look wait to hear more of it so thank you so much thanks tracy have a great afternoon thanks bye-bye once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. 
You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.